Good physics day, everyone. And as of the day that I'm recording this, May 17th, it is a really good physics day because my final grades are in. The semester is over, final exams are done, and I have submitted my grades, and that's it. And as we educators, we can understand as much as we love being in the classroom and interacting with students and really honing and mastering our craft and all of that, it is so wonderful when summer arrives, when we can take a step back, take a break, take some deep breaths, maybe sleep in a little bit, although I have a four-year-old, so that doesn't work, and just recharge and reset and think about uh, how we're gonna do it the next time around. And already this day has had a little bit of extra summer fun in the, the sense that I, I got into the, into the classroom to play around with some new demonstrations. So my last episode when I spoke with Sarah Seeger about the discovery of exoplanets, I had posed this simple little experiment of a pendulum swinging in front of a light bulb and measuring the light with a light sensor and having that mimic an exoplanet transit of a star. And Sarah thought that was a really cool idea and I decided, well, I wanna try this so I can have something to report uh, at the end of that episode and also to put a couple of pictures up in the show notes. Well, I also posted on Twitter and I got an enormous response. Uh, a surprising response, in fact. And I, I would have thought, well, I just kind of came up with this idea off the top of my head. Sur surely this is something people have been doing for a long time. Well, it seems that this is maybe a bit of a new idea. And I talked to my colleague here at Hamilton College, Adam Lark, and he teaches astronomy here. And uh, he actually does research with undergraduate students with an observatory and they search for exoplanets. This was a, a new demo to him and he was really excited about it. And he said, there really isn't much about this in the literature. So I thought, well, maybe we need to change that. So I'm hoping that maybe we can get a physics teacher publication out of this. So we were in the, in the lab space today, testing out different size light bulbs and different distances to place things, different size pendulum, uh, in order to kind of fine tune uh, how this looks. So stay tuned for more details with that. Some other news that I would like to share with you is that I will in fact no longer be at Hamilton College. I accepted a position at Plymouth State University in New Hampshire. And I am really excited about this new opportunity. Uh, I used to live in Maine with my wife for quite a number of years, and we really love New England. We had so many friends there, and my mom actually moved there just after I moved away. So uh, now I have you know more family up in that area, and this is this was such a great opportunity to return to New England. And I'm really excited to be actually joining a department that I'm going to be focusing on the non-physics majors. There is no physics major there. And in fact, there is one physicist, me. So uh, I'm going to have a chance to maybe really dive into a lot of these pedagogical practices and research-based strategies that, that I I really cherish and really want to try to hone in on. Uh, and I'll have a, I have a chance to do that in an environment where, where maybe I can take a leadership role and, and really kind of push that. If you're curious about the courses I'm teaching, well, here's a quick synopsis. I'm gonna be teaching three lectures and two labs this coming fall semester. I'll be teaching a calculus-based physics class, and that's going to be primarily for Plymouth State's meteorology majors and their chemistry majors. I will be teaching an algebra-based physics class for the, you guessed it, the life science majors, which of course is my, is my big specialty. And once I get there, I think that's when I'm going to really get a sense of what specialties these majors are. I don't think it's quite as much of the medical physics and pre-med crowd, although I believe that crowd is there, but that I'll be teaching biology majors, 
I'll be teaching exercise science majors and I believe environmental science majors. I think those are some of the, the key bigger audiences that I'll be teaching. And I'll be looking forward to learning who else is, uh, who else comes into my classroom and trying to really meet their needs uh, as they're going on into the fields they're interested in. I really, I just really love doing that. And uh, I'm excited to get to learn some new physics myself because I've really gone a long way with uh, the physics for the pre-med majors, but there's so much I have to learn about other types of ways to apply life sciences to, to physics. And the third course that I'm going to be teaching, which I think has now come up recently, is astronomy. So this is a course that is part of the Plymouth State General Education Program. So, uh, and apparently this class has been very popular over the years, and there's been a retirement there as well with, with their astronomy uh, faculty member that they had. So I'm looking forward to jumping into that and teaching astronomy for the first time. So that's a very new place for me. I'm really excited about this course but I don't have nearly the background and resources in that. So anyone out there who's got some great resources on astronomy classes, I would love to hear from you. So it's really exciting to take that new opportunity. I've had a great experience here at Hamilton College, but uh, I am excited about this new opportunity that has come forward for me and my family. But here we are in episode 43 of Physics Alive. And what is this episode going to be all about? Well, there's sort of two parts to this, both I'm going to call DNA. So the one part of this is going to be a cool little diffraction experiment about DNA and a link to how Rosalind Franklin discovered the helical structure of DNA. And now this is something that has been written about quite a bit in the literature. And there are a number of different activities that have been put together. But this is the first time I've actually gone ahead and tried it and used it in my classroom. And I felt like it went really well. And I want to share with you some of the resources that I used for that and how it went for me uh, so that you could sort of see what this could look like in, in one way of, of running this experiment, of doing this little uh, classroom demonstration and how the students can get a better sense uh, of the diffraction pattern of DNA. The second piece of this I'm going to call about DNA as well, and I'm going to say it's the DNA of my class this past semester. My, my teaching duty focused in the, the spring 2022 semester on one section of an intro physics for life science physics course. And I tried a few things that may look a little bit like specifications grading or maybe a slight gamification of grading or maybe a little ungrading, but not really. Anyway, I, I want to share with you what I did and how it went, things that I thought went well, things that I'm not quite as convinced about, uh, just so you can see something that I tried. And maybe you can share with me some of the things that you've tried and share how these things may have, if you've done similar things, how they may or may not have worked for you. So just in the, the process of getting to share how different people are doing their clash doing their classes, because for the most part, if we're not sitting in on other people's classes, we might not know what they're doing. So I want to take this opportunity to share what I did, uh, because maybe it can help inform what you do. And, and maybe we can see that there's a community of people that are trying different things. So this episode is all about DNA. So let's, let's cue some music. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy.
Let's start with DNA science. I remember it well. It was 2018. It was a sunny day. Okay, I don't remember it that well. But I do remember it was later in the semester in uh, the spring of 2018. And from my AAPT listserv, I noticed in the email there was a mention of this activity. DNA science modeling Rosalind Franklin's discovery with a pen spring. And this was a lesson framework developed by Rebecca Vieira as part of the AAPT DigiKit for high school physics. And it was such a wonderful little experiment. It was just taking a laser, shining it through a pen spring, and looking at the diffraction pattern and seeing that you get this, this X of an interference pattern that looks so similar in a way to the diffraction pattern from DNA. And it just blew me away how simple it was, but that how rich it could be. And as being someone teaching a physics for life science course, I especially got excited because, wow, this is, this is such a great connection. And I remember excitedly trying it right away. I got a laser pointer, I got a pen spring, and I did it. And I think I had the screen really close to, to the, the spring. And I saw the X, but it was, wasn't resolved very well. And I really didn't see all that much. And I think the semester was over anyway, so I wasn't going to use it in the classroom. But I got very excited about it. And then it sat on the shelf for me for a couple of years. I had moved on to a high school where my time was crunched a little bit and I didn't end up having a chance to, to try it there. Uh, but then when I got to Hamilton College, you know, at first I was teaching primarily labs, but then I moved into teaching the IPLS course. And I didn't think of it last year, but this year the, the subject came up. In fact, it was, uh, I had a, a meeting where one of my colleagues from the biology department, Natalie Nanis, uh, was was at that meeting and she was wearing a shirt with a picture of DNA on it and we got to talking and she was describing this experiment that she had done maybe it was in graduate school where they were looking at different diffraction patterns and building up to the structure of DNA so not just sort of diving right into the final diffraction pattern but but saying let's see what the the physics and chemistry of these diffraction patterns are that led to this conclusion of the double helix uh, so it wasn't just looking at the final picture, but, you know, what happens if we have this kind of structure? What happens if we have this kind of structure? And it got me thinking about this, uh, this pen spring experiment again. And so knowing that I had a month or two yet before I was going to be coming up on, on that unit, I decided, yes, I'm going to do it this year. And I got a couple of papers, one of them being the, the resource from Rebecca Vieira, and uh, took a look at that. But also that was referencing another paper a paper from the physics teacher in 2011 called How Rosalind Franklin Discovered the Helical Structure of DNA, Experiments in Diffraction. This article came from Xavier University in Cincinnati and was written by Gregory Braun, Dennis Tierney, and Hadrian Schmitzer. And finally, I went seeking out this DNA diffraction experiment that Natalie had mentioned to me. And so there is something called the DNA Optical Transform Kit from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Chemistry from their Institute for Chemical Education online store. Now, unfortunately, when I first checked that out, the, the kit was not available because the store was being closed for, I believe, construction and limited staff. So, and I think it may be closed through later this summer, but in uh, looking at the webpage right now, it looks like I can add something to a cart. So I may try to get a hold of these pretty quickly. But basically, it comes with uh, an instruction manual and a kit that includes 
a number, a number of different sections that you can shine a laser through that can show the diffraction pattern for, for different spaced holes in a grid. And the, the paper that I believe goes along with it is one from 1999 in the Journal of Chemical Education, and it's titled Revealing the Backbone Structure of B-DNA from Laser Optical Simulations of its X-ray Diffraction Diagram. So this paper is definitely a bit more challenging to grapple with and probably not the first place we phys physics educators are going to go. I think the first place is the, these first two resources that I mentioned, but this is definitely something I want to take a look at a little bit further. And once I, I get this optical transform kit and the instructions that go along with it, I, I hope that's going to reveal a little bit more. Uh, I suggest that paper and I'll, I'll put it uh, in the, the show notes along with all of the other re uh, references that I've mentioned. Uh, because I, there are definitely pieces of the history I got out of that, and I'm, I'm starting to kind of grapple with it, and I think that paper is going to help. Um, but anyway, I want to share those resources up front, and now I want to describe how this activity went for me. And uh, I'm essentially going to share the experiment that came from the 2011 physics teacher article, and how I went about using that and sort of building up to this uh, particular demonstration that would show the light going through a pen spring. So I'll start by reading a bit of the introduction from that paper. Rosalind Franklin, a chemical physicist, used X-ray diffraction to determine the structure of DNA. What exactly could she read from her X-ray pattern? In lecture notes dated from November 1951, Franklin wrote the following. The results suggest a helical structure, which must be very close packed, containing two, three, or four coaxial nucleic acid chains per helical unit, and having the phosphate groups near the outside. So in this paper, the authors suggest four experiments that enable students to follow in the footsteps of Rosalind Franklin's discovery. Now, of course, we're not going to be using x-rays in the classroom, nor the tiny DNA molecule. Instead, we want to use visible light, but we want to have something that can mimic this helical structure. And it turns out a helical spring will do just the trick. And you don't even have to go out and buy a spring. You can just get a ballpoint pen and open it up and take the spring out, and it works great. So let's take a look at these four experiments. Experiment one, why does the X-shaped pattern reveal the helical structure? So this first experiment is a variation on the single slit experiment with readily available equipment, allowing the student to both see a diffraction pattern similar to Franklin's and to determine the pitch angle alpha of the helix. Now, it's helpful to have a few visuals on hand, so I'm going to put a couple of, of the most important visuals in the show notes. So you can definitely scroll down on your show notes or, or go to or go to physicsalive.com slash DNA, and you'll be able to see the x-ray diffraction pattern of B-DNA that was called Photo 51 by Rosalind Franklin. And I'm going to show some of the images of what the diffraction pattern looks like shining red laser light through the spring, uh, and then also some of the other helpful images for thinking about uh, angles and spacing. So laser light passing through one winding of a spring coil is kind of like the diffraction experiment where you shine laser light through a strand of hair. And this is using Babinet's principle, which states that the diffraction pattern of an obstacle is the same as the diffraction pattern of an aperture of the same shape. According to this principle, the diffraction pattern formed by two straight sections of the wire, one of each side oriented in two different angles, is equivalent to the diffraction pattern of two single slits oriented at a certain angle with respect to each other. So when comparing the diffraction pattern of the helical spring with the x-ray diffraction pattern that's shown by Franklin's Photo 51, students 
can immediately understand what convinced Rosalind Franklin that DNA has a helical shape. Now, the way I set this up was, uh, first of all, looking at what is the pattern from a single slit. So I found it valuable to do this activity after we had already completed the unit on single and double slits. So students had already seen a laboratory experiment where they worked with both of those and they saw those results. And now we're able to build from there. So I could say, okay, let's take a single slit that's oriented vertically. And then we can say, well, let's take a single slit that's oriented horizontally. And we can see that the pattern rotates 90 degrees. And then we can overlay two of those patterns and say, okay, well, here's one vertically and horizontally, and we can see that we get a crossing pattern. And then it's not a big jump at all to now say, okay, well, let's pass the light through the spring. And suddenly we see that we, in, we get a crossing pattern with a particular angle to that crossing and that that's relating what the crossing angle is of those two single slits. The only information that we can get from the distance between the diffraction minima is the thickness A of the wire in our spring. Now, the DNA molecule does not have a thickness because the X-ray diffraction actually measures the location of the heavy phosphorus nuclei. Nevertheless, the paper goes on to say, it's a nice exercise for the students to determine the thickness of the wire for the helical spring. Experiment two, how did Rosalind Franklin determine the diameter of DNA? So in the paper, they say they expand the beam with two lenses so students can illuminate multiple pitches of the wire, letting them find the radius of the helix by first finding the pitch. So here the pitch is analogous, um, the pitch is the spacing between turns in the helix and is analogous to the wavelength of a sine function. The reason we need to illuminate more than one pitch is because now we need to see the double slit interference pattern. So we need to have multiple wires that the laser passes through that we can also get the double slit pattern. So with the double slit pattern, we can get the spacing between the wires. And in that sense, it is now mimicking the, the spacing uh, of this helix for DNA. They also show a calculation, they also show a calculation of how we can determine the radius of the spring in this case, or the DNA molecule, simply by knowing the pitch and some of the other geometry of the situation. So I will leave that as an exercise to the reader. Okay, how did I set this up? Well, it turned out I didn't need a beam expander. I actually tried using a beam exp expander with my laser and it turned out it actually made the laser spot too big. And all I saw was a shadow of the spring. I didn't actually get the diffraction pattern. So what I used was a laser diode from PASCO and just set on one of the optical tracks, but it really didn't even need to be set there. And then I passed that laser light through uh, the pen spring, and then I used a really long distance. I ended up using an eight meter distance between the spring and the, the screen where I projected the diffraction pattern on. And I found that that was a good distance for really resolving the double slit pattern along with a single slit pattern. And it was, it was really a thing of beauty. And, and I posted that and I posted that picture in the show notes and probably actually as the main image for this episode. So that's basically where I stopped. I found that that was a pretty good day for me. I, I started by looking at the, the single slip, single slit oriented one way, oriented another way. Uh, then we looked at some double slits. Uh, as a class, we also then used a couple of other gradings, a, 
uh, a grid of squares and then also looked at a grid of triangles just to give a sense of a more complex structure and then went to the pen spring and we were able to talk about the single slit of light passing across a single wire, the double slit of the light passing across multiple wires at the same time, and then getting the, the angle alpha um, due to the, the, the spring wires basically having this alternating structure because of the, the winding. Experiment three in the paper is a simple diffraction calculation with Rosalind Franklin's photo. So students can apply the same considerations to Franklin's actual photo 51, which can be made available to them in the original size as a diameter of 94 millimeters. And in the paper, they assume that Rosalind Franklin used the wavelength of the copper alpha line, uh, which is a wavelength of 0.15 nanometers. And this let them work backward and determine a distance between the sample and the film of about nine centimeters. So given these dimensions of the experimental setup, along with the photo, the students can determine the angle pitch, and radius of the DNA molecule. And while these numbers may not be the exact numbers, they, um, I think they were saying they couldn't get a hold of what the exact numbers were. This was a way that using those numbers, you could come up with some realistic values and sort of do some of these back calculations. So it turns out in photo 51, there's also a missing order. So there is a first order, second order, third order, and fifth order line that you can look at, but the fourth order is missing. And Franklin correctly attributed the missing fourth order in the diffraction pattern to a second helix, the double helix, which is offset by three-eighths of the helical pitch. And finally, experiment four, computer simulations of the diffraction pattern. So uh, I honestly, I didn't go into any detail or really look into experiment four. So you are certainly welcome to, to check that out. And, and they suggest that students with experience in mathematical software, such as Maple or Mathematica, may have fun generating this pattern on the computer. So that's something that would be an option as well. But I think either doing experiment one and two, or maybe one, two, and three would be a fine addition to a course. So I'm really happy I tried that out this semester. I thought it went really well. I got a lot of positive feedback from the students. They, they thought it was really interesting to be able to see that, especially since um, many of them had seen the structure before. I had a couple of students come up to me and say, I am in a genetics class this semester, this semester with Natalie Nanas, who uh, I, I was inspired by to do this. And uh, yeah, there's so much great overlap between what we're doing in that class and what we were doing here. And this really helps me understand this bit a little bit more. So I, I thought it went really well. And I definitely encourage you to check out some of those resources. I'd be happy to share some of what I've done, but I know there's others who have tried this and you can get a lot of great information out of the papers uh, to, to give it a try yourself. So there you go. That's DNA's part one of this podcast. And now for DNA part two. And this is going to be the DNA of the class that I was teaching this semester. Now, I could spend time talking about the methods that I used in class, but I think what I want to focus on today to show things that I thought worked and things that I didn't think worked quite as well is to talk about the structure of the class, the DNA of the, the, the class. What was the backbone that held it together that sort of guided the, the grading piece? So during the spring 2022 semester at Hamilton College, 
the main teaching responsibility I had was for the intro physics for the life sciences majors. Uh, many of the students were going into careers in medicine and that's, that's the design of the course. So that's the audience I knew to expect. Now method wise, what I usually do in class is, well, what I would like to do is be able to, to have a structure like modeling physics. I wasn't able to do that and actually for the first time in many, many years, I was in a straight up lecture room. So I was in a lecture hall and I'm trying to do a lot of the active learning things that I normally like to do and I found it really challenging. Even putting students into groups, I know you can do think, pair, share and you can, you can pair up with the person next to you or you can still work in a group of three but when you have these long tables and you can't move them around and you're sort of in a standard lecture hall, it's really tough to do that so I found this semester to be actually very challenging for that reason. Quite a bit of the time, I still did try to do these research-based active learning techniques, uh, such as offering up clicker-style questions, although I usually just have groups show a letter answer on their whiteboard, so I would ask these multiple-choice questions where I could get students chatting about it and then revealing an answer and then having them discuss that. And then I also tried to do a lot of group problem-solving. And I think I didn't do as much of that as I might normally do. And I certainly couldn't get around to the students the same way that I can when I'm offering class in uh, more of a lab space so that I can go to different lab groups and be able to speak with each of them and have them present their work on whiteboards. I found that that was really challenging to do in a space like this. But I would say in the classroom, that was what I focused most of my time on. I tried to stay away from the lecturing side of things, or if I did, there would just be little mini lectures and maybe a quick example problem that I would solve. And uh, much to the, to the dismay of some of the students, not nearly enough lecture and not nearly enough example problem solving. But for the most part, I actually had really uh, strong teaching evaluations. There were, well, I'd probably say 80 to 85% of the class really went for it, but then there was a population that just didn't go for it and they, they really hit me hard. Um, a slightly larger percentage than I normally uh, get for the, the teaching methodology, particularly since I, I took a lot of time during the first week and some reminders throughout the semester of why it is that I'm doing things the way that I'm doing. And I find that that, that helps, that students appreciate that, but there's still gonna be the students that don't buy in and no amount of explanation can, can help. In fact, one of the teaching evaluations I, I had was the student brought up that you know they they didn't like how I was doing it and that my response was well that's just the way I teach. I'm pretty sure I went into a lot more detail than that which is that's the way I teach because of reasons a b and c that are that are backed by education research but that's that's not the part that they that that student wanted to hear. Okay, so moving on to the to the DNA of the class. So topic-wise, this uh, I very much focused in on physics for the life sciences, particularly focusing on uh, physics that that students going into health fields would be most interested in. Uh, so I, I can make a whole episode about that. I have I've had guests talking about that. So I'll, I'll save that um, for for other times and for past episodes. Sort of the textbook framework I offered was the the modeling instruction workbook that I got. 12 years ago now during the modeling workshop, which I've been sort of hybridizing ever since. So I still have some modeling problems tucked in there, but I've been adding more and more and more IPLS type of problems as well, taking those from different 
different textbooks that I have and putting those in and a lot of maybe too many problems that I've written myself, but I get to use those year after year. And I, so I really like this workbook as a sort of the, the problem set that students use. And uh, also I do have some readings there, some I've written, some I've, I've used from some of the modeling materials. And a lot of times I just offer videos and OpenStax textbook readings for each unit. So uh, each, each week I let the students know that here's what we're going to be taking a look at. Here are some videos you might watch. Here is some textbook readings that you might take a look at if you'd like something more than what the workbook is offering. But problem solving wise, everything is, is within the workbook itself. And I really like that model and I would say that uh, the students really appreciate that particular structure that that they have to to follow. I think even the I think even the naysayers of how I did the class this semester still had something positive to say about uh, that that particular uh, aspect of the course. Okay, so here's what I did: grading expectation and DNA backbone of the class wise. I aired more towards something called specifications grading, and I'll put a link to a couple of books in the show notes of where some of these ideas come from. I'll see if I can dig up a few websites, but uh, the, the main piece is, is specifications gradings. It's a book I read by Linda Nielsen. And it's sort of, it's not completely specifications, but it's it's somewhat of a, of a combination. And I had six expected grading elements. There were quizzes, there was a portfolio, there were projects, there were labs, there was an engagement score, and there was the office exam. And what I did was I assigned a certain number of stars to each of these. Now, this was something new. I, I, was, I was going on a hike and this idea just kind of struck me. And, and for better or for worse, I went with it. And I don't know if I'll do it again, but I want to offer it out here to see what folks think if, if you've done something like that before, if you found it work. And, and I did sort of tailor, tailor the stars to the audience that I knew I had here. So the, so the grading I'm doing for that is, is knowing the, the skill of the students at Hamilton College. And in the show notes, I will, I will post a, a picture of what this star scheme looked like. So out of these six categories, uh, the top three categories I mentioned, I assigned three stars to, and the last three categories I just assigned two stars to. And basically, if you, and there were to 15 total stars. So if you got 14 or 15 of the stars, you get an A. If you got 13 stars, you get an A minus. If you get 12, you get a B plus, and, and you can see the, the rest of what that scheme looks like. So quizzes, I'll start there. I did not offer any exams. It was a weekly quiz, and it was pretty much almost every week. I think I ended up doing 10, maybe 11 quizzes. I actually stuck with what I did last year when there were more pandemic considerations on the line. I actually had all of the quizzes done at home. So they were all take home quizzes. The, the students had an hour time limit to complete it. The, the hope was that they could finish them in 20 to 30 minutes, but they had an hour time limit to complete and to submit. I don't know if I like that. It's unclear to me if everybody is, is truly following the guidance I suggest, I certainly see people that I know work together. They complete the quiz at similar times. So they may just decide we're going to study together and now we'll go take the quiz. I'm going to assume that's true, but I, I can't always know that, that they're not sitting and working together. So that may be a piece that I revisit in the future. But for the quizzes, the, the way I graded it was if your average quiz score was a 94 to 100%, then you get the three stars. If you were at the 86 to 93%, two stars, and anything less than that was one star. The, the average quiz score being sort of that, that higher level, I, I think, is, 
because of what I saw from these students last semester with very similar quizzes. The portfolio, so this is for the mainly for the homework assignments, but also for quiz corrections. So I did not grade each of the assignments that, that I gave for, for correct answers. Instead, I, I had one grader working uh, for me and she would look through and make sure all the problems were completed and with good effort. And as long as you did that, then you could get the full three stars. If you only missed, if you missed zero or just one of the assignments, you could still get three stars. If you missed two or three assignments, so students could opt to not do a couple of the assignments and they could lose one star. So if they were shooting for a B in the class, for instance, they could just not do as many of the assignments. But that, of course, is going to impact quiz grades as well. And I've done that the past two years. I've kind of liked that. And uh, that's a piece that I, I may continue doing. Very helpful to have a grader for that, uh, I, I will say. Okay, projects. I've, I've, I've built up a, a whole subset of types of projects. I ended up doing four projects this semester, two of them shorter, two of them longer. I did two shorter one that I called quick reviews. And the idea was that students worked in groups together. They had to come up with a five minute presentation on a topic that was, was related to what we were doing in class, but maybe a bit more applied to their field of interest. And the thing with the quick reviews, because five minutes is short, I asked everybody to present. And I, I did it in sort of a, I don't know if it's a jigsaw style, but I, I called it that. But basically, a member from each group became an expert and joined a group of, say, four other experts from other groups. And then they all presented to each other. And so I went around and I listened to, I, I planned it out so that I would listen to each group's presentation once, but I would only hear one person uh, presenting it. And I really liked that. I think that worked well for the most part. I think the students liked that. Then I did two bigger projects. Uh, one of them was a project where I asked them to not do this, the typical stand and present PowerPoint, but instead to come up with some other unique way of presenting. And I gave lots of different options from create a podcast, create a video. And I have to say the video quality from students nowadays is, is superb. It's, it's really crazy uh, what, what they come up with. Um, you know, other ways of, of acting things out or doing some sort of live demonstration. So I gave lots of different options, but a student could be creative and come up with something. And then the last uh, project that I did was, uh, since it's a lot of pre-med majors, an MCAT style passage problem. So they have to take a topic and they have to write up a passage of four or five paragraphs and then write five multiple choice questions and ask about diagrams, uh, make some questions about graphs, but and, and otherwise, you know, just try to write a question like like it is on the MCAT. And I think this gives enough variety in types of projects and the students seem to really uh, appreciate that. And with each project, there was a, a rubric associated with it. And basically, and, and this is very specs grading, uh, the, the rubric was pass fail on each category. So the students had uh, basically to pass every category and any category they missed would go as a a missed part of the assignment for the number of stars. I call them checkpoints. So if you miss zero or one project checkpoint, you get three stars. But if you miss two or three project checkpoints, you only get two stars. Now, this was one where in, in specs grading, there's often tokens that you provide students. They may have three tokens at the beginning of the semester to account for anything they've missed. So if they have a late assignment, they can submit a token in order to hand that assignment in a little bit late and not face a penalty for that. So these tokens are sort of a, a little bit of grace that's built into the class and you miss an assignment, you forget something, something else that takes your attention. So there, there, this is built in. 
Uh, but I also use those tokens so that if you missed one of those checkpoints, you could redo part of the project and, and resubmit, either represent it via video um, for, for one of the shorter ones or, or something like that. And now not many students took took up this opportunity, but there were there were a few, and I think I needed to advertise it a little bit better. But but that was one way that I could sort of address allowing students to go back and redo something that that they could have done a better job on if, if they so-called failed one of those uh, checkpoints. Okay, so that's the projects. Uh, each of those first three categories, quizzes, portfolio, and projects, uh, were all three stars. And now the, the, the other pieces I consider two stars, so a little bit less, so the, the labs. And now this, because I didn't have complete control of the labs, there were three lab sections. I only did one of them. I had to, uh, and it was not just the lab for my physics class, physics 105, but it was also the lab for physics 205, which was the calculus-based class that was not being taught in an IPLS style. So I didn't, I didn't try too hard to do much there, I think. Uh, basically, if your average lab score was 94 or higher, you got two stars. 86 to 93, you got one star and otherwise no stars. So nothing too fancy to talk about there. Engagement, I, I still never know if I, I, it's sort of the participation part of the grade. I've renamed it engagement and specified that it's not just about, you know, how much you speak up in class, but it's how I can tell, are you working hard on the assignments? Are you seeking extra help when needing, needed? Are you demonstrating interest in the material? So that was a two, one or zero star. And then the office exam, this was something that I thought because I, I only have 30 students, I, I put that in quotes, I'm going to meet with each student at midterm and at, at, the, at the final exam period and give them a five to 10, I call it, I said a five to 10 minute office exam, where I just ask a couple of questions, just a handful of key ideas. Know what students would call trick questions. It's really just what are the big key pieces? Can I put two charged particles on the board uh, three charged particles in sort of a triangle, and and you show me how you would go about solving for the, the the Coulomb net force on one of those charges. Can can you take this electric potential grid and tell me something about how fast a charged particle might be moving through it? Can you can you show me do a calculation? Show me the the light ray as you go from one material to another using Snell's law. Can can you show me how I could get an image from two lenses to create a microscope. So, so things that we've done in class, the basic key ideas, and just can you show me that you can do that? And basically, you get two stars if you would demonstrate that with proficiency. Uh, just one star if you kind of got it, but you were getting a number of key ideas incorrect. And I didn't give anybody zero stars. But I would say out of the, the 30, I probably had five or six who I assigned one star to that they, they were just showing that you know when they were with me they they couldn't they couldn't get the the key ideas cleanly. I really like this piece because especially at the midterm because I got to meet with every student and give them some immediate feedback of I think you're doing great or I think this is what you need to do to see improved success during the second half of the course. And some students took the advice I gave during that and and they came out stronger and more prepared and seeking more help during the second half of the course, and some students didn't. So there you go. That's um, a bit more than I think I intended to say about this, this whole piece, but I just wanted to share what I tried and how I thought things worked. Like the office exam, uh, it's just very time consuming on those, those two weeks. 
and I, I don't, I, I, I might save that for smaller courses. I think a course with 10 students or less that is, it could be perfect in, but more than that, I think it's starting to get too many, especially if you have multiple classes where you're trying that. Projects, I, I love the projects. Engagement, I, I don't know if I really want to make that a, a category. I feel like it just kind of double penalizes a, a student who is not succeeding in the class. They're not succeeding because they are not as engaged. They are not seeking the help that they need. And I feel like that really, the categories just punish them in a way further than, than how they're already performing in the class. Portfolios, mm, I think is going okay. I may have to revisit it. The quizzes, uh, again, I don't know if I need to do that specs grading. It, just in general, I don't know if I need to do any of this as a specs graded course. I think it worked okay. A lot of the students were kind of confused even the ones who appreciated what I was trying and did, did well in the course. I, I don't know if that's necessary, but it, it's one of those where, where I, I've heard there can be some value in, in specs grading and in other types of, I, I don't think I would call this ungrading. There was definitely a, a grade associated with it, but that there is some, um, some value in, in this, these different styles of, of grading that can help support audiences in our classroom that that um, don't typically succeed as well and that need that need more support and maybe don't have the same background as other students have so it's something that i do want to consider continue exploring and i'm curious if folks have tried something like this or have tried specifications grading and if you would be able to share with me, you know, I've sort of shared how things have gone for me. So if you've tried something out, I would love to hear from you, hear how it's gone. Maybe we could exchange some resources and, and have a little conversation or, or, or share some notes. And that would help kind of uh, give, give all of us a, a chance to, to hone our craft of teaching. Well, I think that about does it. You can find the links to everything I've talked about this episode in the show notes, or you can go to the web link for this episode, physicsalive.com DNA. This includes the teaching articles about the DNA interference experiment, resources about specifications grading, my syllabus from the past semester, and any other goodies I think of. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at Physics Alive or leave a comment on the episode page, physicsalive.com DNA. If you enjoyed the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating. You just need to go to Shows on your app, select Physics Alive, scroll down past the recent episodes, and click on Tap to Rate. Word of mouth is even better. Share this podcast with a friend. The more teaching re resources we have to choose from, the better. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've enjoyed these various strands of DNA. Today's action step, take a moment to reflect on the DNA of your classes. Is there something that really works well? Celebrate that. Is there something that isn't quite cutting the mustard the way you had hoped? Well, revise it or just drop it. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. They won't be coming fast and furious this summer since I'm packing boxes and moving to New Hampshire, but my goal is to absolutely continue this show in my new venue. Until then, may you ever strive to bring physics alive and be well.